Good morning. Can you hear me? When Richard came up after the um, announcement for a chair collector, I thought, gosh, God moves quickly, doesn't he? <laughs> he doesn't. Not that quick. It's a wonderful problem, isn't it, to have uh, uh, a problem where you can't put out enough chairs because there's so many people. Uh, you won't see it this morning at the 9.30, uh, but we put chairs out because we ex expect people to sit on them um, because God is doing something. Uh, and when we put the chairs out, some of us bless uh, a blessing over the chair uh, so when people come, they feel safe, uh, they feel uh, welcomed, uh, and they feel loved by God. Um, so if you know a person who can help us put chairs out, uh, please do. I'd rather have the problem of trying to find a volunteer to come and help us uh, do that than pay someone £15,000 a year just to do that on a Saturday night. Um, so do be praying for us. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for the gift of this church. Lord, thank you for the people who have sat here, who have stood here, who have wept here, who have been married here, who have been confirmed here, Lord. Thank you that this has been and continues to be a missional hub, a place where we retreat on a Sunday to refresh because we know we leak, but to go out again to live and tell the story of Jesus. So speak to us this morning, we pray, as we look at your word. Amen. Now, you're going to find this hard to believe, but the vicar has a day off. I know it's a shame and a, 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 you know, disgrace, whatever word you want to put it in. But I am actually entitled in my statement of particulars, uh, which is this weird document that clergy get because we're not employees of the church, uh, but we're office holders of the church, so we own everything, but we can't sell anything. Um, um, and uh, it's just a kind of a check and balance, really, to make sure that vicars aren't being bullied uh, by the bishop uh, and other people, or that the vicar isn't doing the bullying themselves. Uh, and in this statement of particulars, it says that the vicar is entitled to at least, and the key word is at least, uh, not a maximum, I remind myself, um, but at least uh, 24 hours of uninterrupted rest. So on a Friday, you'll see that my phone is switched off. And unless there is a crisis, I try not to be available and be available to my first neighbor, my wife, Bethany, uh, and my kids. Uh, and this uh, Friday, we had the joy of going to Cribs Cause Causeway. <laughs> How about that? I looked at the weather and I thought, I don't want to walk. Uh, I don't want to be cold. Uh, I need uh, an almond croissant. I need a good coffee. I'm tired. We're heading into Christmas. Let's go to a cathedral of consumerism, Cribs Causeway. As we got there, I was struck by the, the cleanness, by the light, by the brightness, by the invitation, by the different displays that there were uh, from different shops inviting people in. Those shops are inviting people in for a transaction. The church, sisters and brothers, at this time, we're inviting people in for transformation. We're not here, are we, just to do uh, a transaction to offer a coffee and a seat because we just want to offer coffee and seats. We're here to offer the coffee and the seats because we want people to say yes 
yes to Jesus. And today in our text, in Luke 1, 26, uh, verses uh, 26 to 38, we're going to start a new sermon series as we head up to Christmas Day, looking at the hope of Christmas. If you take uh, Christ out of, um, if you take Chris, sorry, out of Christmas, you're left with Chris, aren't you? And it's not going to get you anywhere. But we have to remind ourselves to always put Christ in Christmas. So as I enjoyed myself at um, Cribs Causeway, I was aware that it's just a transaction, and I want to be here for transformations, and I'm sure you do too. A few years ago, I found myself in Nazareth, and I was at the Church of the Annunciation. And the church is said to be built, a Catholic church is said to be uh, built over the house of Mary. And it's the place where we are told in Scripture that God sent a messenger, an angel, Gabriel, to proclaim the news that she was to conceive, that she was, yes, a virgin, but that God had seen her and that he was turning his face towards her so that she could change the whole cause of the cosmos. And as we were watching this, um, as we came into this massive uh, place, we looked around uh, and we were given some time to just wander. And I found a corner where I sat and just took the place in. You can imagine it's in the Holy Land, so these are big tourist places. You get, held, you get brought in like cattle, you come in one way, go out another, get the photo, go home, etc., etc. But I sat there and I looked at this place. And you can see through some railings, I was on a kind of a, um, a gallery looking down, and you can see in this um, beautiful lit area, the kind of house, the kitchen area, where we think Mary would have prepared food and, and done her day-to-day -day, um, uh, um, jobs, the kind of boring jobs that all of us have to do. And as I was watching uh, the, the site where we think heaven touched earth, where the, 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 change of, the course of history changed when Jesus was proclaimed uh, to come to Mary in her, in her tummy, this American group came past and they were looking in, they were taking the photos, they were getting the usual spill. And just behind them, I noticed this lady who was staff of the uh, Catholic Church and just behind the, the kind of gated area with the, the, with the kitchen is a huge, about this size, huge stone uh, floor with an altar on it in the middle. And she was very carefully, just um, uh, with her bucket, cleaning the floor. And I was amazed when I watched her, how she knew how to throw it in such a way to get the reach that she wanted. And she was in her element. She was doing her thing. She knew how to clean this area. She was offering her act of love, you might say, to this, to this place. And the thing that really um, uh, threw me is everybody else was looking at this place here and not looking at her. Everyone had their back to her, but they were looking at the place where history was once made, not where history is being made now. And I thought to myself, and when I prayed about it, I felt God say, do we look for God in the wrong places? Do we go back to the history where God has been and say, do that again, as opposed to going into history and saying, come Lord, do it again, do it afresh, do something new? I really felt when I looked at that lady that we were, had our eyes in the wrong place. Here was this lady who was insignificant, unknown, no name, a cleaner, often ignored, walked past, 
often, you know, dehumanized. But I felt in my spirit that day that God was saying, these are the type of people. It's the depressed. It's those who are ripped off. It's those who are poor in body, mind, and spirit that I first come to. Yes, I come to all people. Yes, I love all people. But in Mary's yes to God, do we not see, church, that God first turns his people, his attention, to those places where we often overlook, often walk past, and often choose to check out on instead of checking in on. You'll know this, that uh, that Nazareth is a household name now. We sing it, don't we, in primary schools. We get it in our cards. We get it uh, in uh, Cribs Causeway. You know, we hear it all over the place. But when Mary was there, when God was there, when an angel visited earth and started to undo the sin and the shame and the muck uh, that Adam and Eve started in in the Garden of Eden when the rescue plan was launched... Nazareth was a place that no one really knew. There were bigger towns around that the Romans were rebuilding. It was an insignificant place, but not insignificant insignificant to God. God's grace is for all. But it first goes to those people like Mary who suggest to God, who are depressed and ripped off and run out of town. And we see it, do we not, in the whole of Scripture, that it's who God wants to go to first, because God is a good God who likes to give good gifts to his people. So, sisters and brothers, what does it mean to you today to say yes to God? Do you remember that first moment when you felt the Spirit of God draw close when you felt the tingling, the hair on the back of your neck rise up, when perhaps you just knew that you've always been held in the palm of God's hands. Maybe you had that massive uh, lightning bolt moment when you were walking down the promenade in Weston and God got you with a bolt. Probably not. May have happened. Perhaps it was in the quiet time when you just realised that the scriptures made sense and you wanted to say yes to Jesus. Friends, we want to be a church that sees the renewal of this town every single day. We don't want to just make it a five-year plan. We don't want it just to be the latest um, branding that we're doing. We want it to be our heart cry. We want it to be who we are. Why? Because like we see in my illustrations before, God will never walk out on the people of Western Supermare. He will always walk in. He will always check in. He will always say yes. And when we say yes to God, he will do the miraculous here. I long, and we all long, don't we, for Western to be a destination. A destination because God is on the move. Healing is happening. Restoration is happening. Marriages are being sustained Finances are being supported. The church is stepping in to the place of darkness, not stepping out, not checking out. And that's the church that we long because we want to be a church that says yes to God each and every day. So what does it mean to say yes? Well, to be a disciple is to be a learner. That's what the Greek tells us. 
It's to be an apprentice. It's to be a student. It's to be somebody each day who turns up to school, if you like, with your book bag, with your water bottle, or with your pen and your notepad, and say, I'm still teachable. I don't have it all. I don't understand it all. I have shades of gray. That's okay. But I know the teacher. I know the Messiah. And if I say yes to him each day, I will learn something new. And like Mary, I believe it's in our daily discipleship that we realize that it all comes down to grace. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. That means that this church is here and still here 125 years on after we were given the Iron Church, just where the church hall is. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran theologian and pastor. And if you ever want a meaty book, and if you ever want to think about some ethics or uh, the cost of Christianity, or you just want a good holiday read, don't take him. <laughs> He's one of these people who makes the Christian uh, life the Christian journey seems so clear, but what he's actually saying is really complicated theology, and you just wish that you had 5% of his brain. Anyway, Bonhoeffer was born in 1906, and he received his theological education both in Germany, in Berlin, and in Rome, and he went on to teach around the world and ended up in New York for a time. And as the Nazi movement was started, he sided eventually with the Confession Church, and he resisted the Hitler movement. And he actually was involved in a plot to lead to um, the, 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 false, uh, the, um, the failed attempt sorry, to bring down Adolf Hitler. But for Bonhoeffer, he reminds us that cheap grace, when we say yes to Jesus, but we only offer him a cheap grace, not a generous grace, that will be the enemy of the church. In his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he suggests that today we are fighting for costly grace. That as a church who says yes each and every day, it's the costly grace we should be going for, not the cheap grace that we can offer sometimes. So what does he mean? Bonhoeffer would say cheap grace is grace without price. It's a grace without a cost. Cheap grace is a Christian who lives like the rest of the world. They model themselves on the world's standards in every respect. They don't stand out for anything because they're not standing for Jesus. Cheap grace means that the love of God is taught as a conception, not as a reality. It's something you know up here and you don't know in here. Yet the Christian, Bonhoeffer would say, they must distinguish their lives away from the world because we, we should be teaching the world how to be the world. We should be the ethics for the world. We should be showing the world what love and grace and mercy and joy and peace and all the rest of the fruits of the spirits really mean, not telling, letting them tell us what it should be. Cheap grace, Bonhoeffer would say, is preaching uh, of the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It's baptism 
without realizing that you need the Holy Spirit in your heart. It's communion without confession. It's absolution without church discipline. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Costly grace, the grace that you and I are going for more days than not, is a grace that calls us to follow, calls us to be teachable, to be disciplined in what we do, where we go. And it's one that calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Costly grace costs because we are to give God our whole lives as we say yes to him, like Mary did in that moment. Costly grace condemns the muck that we find in our own lives because it's the grace that goes on to justify it and to change it and to shape it so we don't stay in that place. But costly grace must be sought time and time again because we leak. Costly grace requires not perfection, but progress. I don't know how many of you have been told or been made to feel small because you're not perfect, that you're not giving Jesus a run for his money each and every day in your marriages, in your families, in your finances, wherever there needs to be more grace. Friends, we've got to go for progress. It's a lifelong journey to become more like our Messiah. Costly grace is costly because it, commits, it, it um, compels us to submit and to follow, not to be the person who has people following them, but to be the people who is following Jesus. In our text today, Luke's gospel is telling us that discipleship is a response to grace. Mary's yes to God was a daily choice, wasn't it? She did not have the whole picture. She was not told of the, the whole cost, that her heart would be broken, that she would go on the most incredible journey, but it would be the one that would be so painful and so real to her. But she took the daily task of saying yes to grace and yes to God. I think in Mary's yes to God, we are reminded that at the start of Advent, we are not to build up our personal defences, but we are to let people in, and we are to be sisters and brothers in communion with each other, church family, as we navigate our way forward. I wonder what Jesus is calling you today to say yes to him. Where do you need to go for the costly grace? Where do you need to put down the cheap grace that we've all picked up? Mary said yes to God, and it changed, did it not, the whole cause of the cosmos. It changed everything. It changed history. So this week, sisters and brothers, take a moment to ref reflect on those times that you have said yes to Jesus and be reminded of his love and his grace. I want to leave you with a question. 
like the lady who was cleaning in that church in Nazareth. Are we looking in the wrong places? Have we got used to where we expect God to work? But today, as God's saying to us, it's okay to say yes to me in a new way. Let's pray.